It's great to be back with you again to uh, continue talking about the prophetic literature in general. Um, Today we're going to get into Jeremiah in particular and how some of the themes that I'm going to try to draw out with you for the next three weeks of suffering servant. We normally think of the suffering servant in the the book of Isaiah. And uh, I'm going to at least suggest that this idea of suffering servant is, is essential to the very call narratives of all prophets, that that is a motif that certainly Isaiah develops wonderfully, but is also present in, um, in, the, in the Gospel of Jeremiah, in the Gospel of Jeremiah, and uh, also in, in the Gospel of Mark that we'll look at uh, a little bit today. So let's, uh, let's pray as we begin. We give you thanks and praise, our living God, for this morning that you've given us to wake us up um, for this place to be together, to open your word. We pray that uh, it would be profitable to us as we consider um, the book of Jeremiah and the gospel of Mark uh, together today and over the next uh, several weeks. And pray a blessing then on our time here together through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, so uh, last week, if you remember, we, we concluded, and I was suggesting that the book of Jeremiah, uh, we, I, I mentioned at the very end of the lecture last week, this uh, wonderful German scholar named Louis Stuhlmann, who wrote a book called Order Amidst Chaos, and I suggested at the end of the hour last week that perhaps the book of Jeremiah is profitably read as a, as a whole, And part of that is because the book of Jeremiah, which does seem to be very disparate, and it tends to jump around a lot, uh, Stuhlmann's point that I was uh, repeating to you is that perhaps that's intentional. I want to look at kind of the flip side of that as we begin today and then as we get into Jeremiah chapter 1, and I want to suggest the kind of the... uh, the title of this lecture series of Calling Chaos and Comfort. And I want to look at uh, those three components from the book of Jeremiah as a whole. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to make a suggestion here. And, uh, uh-oh, there it is. Um, and so some of you may recognize what I'm about to do uh, in, in biblical studies and in literary theory, mostly in biblical studies, biblical scholars um, enjoy these things called a a chiasm from the Greek letter chi. And what you do in a chiasm is you kind of say A is here and A prime is down here. B is here and it's repeated with a a similar element. And and then C is here, C prime. And then the kind of the the bottom line, the punchline at the center of the chiasm. And I have explored for the last few years whether or not the book of Jeremiah, though I agree with Stuhlmann that it, on first blush, it's very disparate. It's, it, it, uh, it almost does seem chaotic. But I want to suggest here something that's going to set up today and set up certainly next week and our final week in this series at the at the end of um, at the end of April, March. <laughs> um, 
I'm staying another month. You didn't know that? <laughs> um, so so just, just try this out. And whether or not this is convincing or not, I'll let you decide. The book of Jeremiah begins, as we began looking at last week, uh, with, um, with a call narrative. It's a narrative about Jeremiah. And it happens to be a narrative, a particular kind of narrative that we're going to look at a little bit later uh, this morning, of a call narrative, a prophetic call narrative. So, the words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests of Anatoth in the territory of Benjamin, and we, we did this last fall, uh, the word of the Lord came to him in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. We talked about what that might mean. Uh, it's a, probably about 627 B.C., because pretty sure that uh, Josiah came to the throne in 640. So, about 627. And if you, if you uh, know a little bit of biblical history, what's happening around 627? What nation is ascending greatly? And we have all sorts of both biblical evidence and extra-biblical evidence of Babylon becoming a, an ascendant power. And lo and behold, Babylon will ultimately be one of the main, uh, one of the main uh, concerns of the book of Jeremiah. So that's happening about 627. That makes very good sense with the rest of the book. And through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. Oops. Oh, that's okay. Um, The word of the Lord came to me saying, and we looked at this last fall, that wonderful little uh, pun that, uh, that is in the book of Jeremiah of the Beterim and Bebeten. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. So that's the first component of a call narrative. Sovereign Lord, I do not know how to speak. I'm only a child. But the Lord said to me, and then we're going we're gonna to unpack that as as we get on with things. So it, it, it begins with a narrative about Jeremiah. That's in chapter 1. So we might call that A in our chiasm. The book of Jeremiah concludes, it's, it's actually a fascinating conclusion to my mind. It concludes this way. Oops. I'm still getting used to having, having everything on an iPad and not a hard copy Bible. Here we go. Uh, I see. I need my son here to help me because he would just get through this easily, and I'm struggling not too much. Okay, um, Jeremiah 51 concludes this way um, in, in verse 64. Then say, so will Babylon, there's our great nation of Babylon, sink to rise no more because of the disaster I will bring on her and her people will fall. And then there's this remarkable little, the words of Jeremiah end here. But the problem is, not a problem, but the reality is there's a whole other chapter it's like the book kind of, you know, it's a control-alt-delete 
Sorry, I'm, now I'm giving you my IBM-ness here. Uh, it's a Control-Alt-Delete. It's a Apple Control Escape, whatever it is with Apple. I don't know. Uh, it, it <laughs> I, I, I do Control-Alt-Delete quite a bit, actually. <laughs> I don't know. I'm lost. I don't, um, but then Chapter 52 is added on. And what you find if you start reading Jeremiah Chapter 52 is Jeremiah Chapter 52 just kind of takes... 2 Kings chapters 23, 24, and 25, and just takes pieces of those chapters and adds it on to the end of the book of Jeremiah. And it's a narrative again, but it's a narrative about Israel. Oops. And that's chapter 52. All well and good. Narrative introduction, narrative conclusion. Immediately after the narrative introduction, and we're going to look at this a little bit next week. Uh, no, we'll actually spend the whole hour next week looking at the laments of Jeremiah. And there are oracles and some laments in there. There are oracles about Judah. Immediately prior to that final narrative are a significant collection of oracles against foreign nations. And that's chapters, uh, that's chapters 45 to 51. Okay, uh, we're just going to keep looking at this. Immediately after the oracles about Judah, there's a series of narratives, or we'll just call them events, in the life of Jeremiah. Next week, we're going to look uh, at chapter uh, 29, which is one of my favorite chapters, or 28 and 29, I should say, one of my favorite series in this section of events in the life of Jeremiah that describe his conflict with Hananiah, the false prophet, and then the letter that he's charged to write. Immediately prior to the oracles against foreign nations are more events in the life of Jeremiah. And that's from chapter 34 to 44. And in those chapters, Jeremiah is defeated. Those are the chapters that contain when Jeremiah is actually bound and dragged off to where? To Egypt. So he didn't even get to go to Babylon where he said, hey, that's where life's going to be found. Jeremiah is ultimately defeated and carried off into Egypt. Well, the events in the life of Jeremiah here, he, he's sort of vindicated. There's a lot of language about, don't worry about them. The Lord says, I've, I've got your back here. So what does that leave us right in the middle of the chiasm? If I'm correct with my take on this. It leaves us with chapters uh, 30 through 33, which is the book of Consolation. That contains the great new covenant promise. And that's what we're going to look at the final week I'm with you. That's chapters 30 through 33. So if you just look at that, if, if I'm correct, and um, there are other uh, scholars who have, who have uh, dabbled in Jeremiah like I have, trying to, trying to tease out whether there's some sort of order amidst chaos like this, um, that puts 
this book of consolation squarely in the middle of the book. So there's a calling, and ultimately Israel's calling. There's chaos, oracles about Judah, events in the life of Jeremiah, the suffering of Jeremiah, events in the life of Jeremiah, defeated, oracles against the foreign nations, ultimate defeat of the nations, that's your chaos. And right in the middle of the book is this comfort. So perhaps um, there's a little bit more order to the book of Jeremiah than we maybe understood at, at first when we read the book of Jeremiah. It, it actually does make a lot of sense, at, to my mind at least, as a unified book. That's, that concludes, <laughs> I was exactly 15 minutes late last week because uh, those were the last 15 minutes that I wanted to get at last week. And so, we're, so now I'll be 20 minutes late this week. So <laughs> I will come back in April. Uh, um, so that was kind of the first topic that I wanted to talk about of reading prophetic books as literary wholes and how important that can be. If you remember, we looked at the oracles against the nations as an example in Amos last week and how the oracles are very carefully arranged to make the point about the destruction of the northern kingdom, which is what Amos is writing about. So... That's the first kind of, reading them, the prophetic books as this, as this, whole, uh, this whole unit. Second perspective is reading a prophetic through book through as a collection, uh, and that becomes a particularized reading. And this is going to be crucial, again, in reading the book of Jeremiah. I mentioned this, not that anybody would remember this, but I mentioned this last fall when I was here about this approach of literary forms, which in Old Testament scholarship, we call it form criticism. And that's really studying the genres, the different genres that the prophetic material appears in. And we have many different genres, many different forms that come to us in the book of Jeremiah. So we've already looked at maybe how the book of Jeremiah works as a whole. Now I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about a literary appreciation of the parts. We could begin with something, this is an, an example. I'm going to do this one quickly, and then we're going to spend a lot more time uh, talking about, if I can figure out how to do this on my iPad, uh, we're going to spend a lot more time talking about another form, in a moment, like a, a covenant lawsuit. Very, very familiar form uh, that the, the, the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, are functioning as essentially as, as attorneys. And they're prosecuting a case against Israel using the covenant, uh, the covenant documents. And they'll do things like, and it, it, it actually looks a lot like a lawsuit, they will summon, oftentimes they'll summon heaven and earth, they'll summon witnesses, um, they'll put witnesses essentially on a, well, there's no witness stand, but you know what I mean, uh, functionally, they put them on a witness stand, they say, who will testify against my people, and then there's a historical rehearsal, usually that the Lord says, the Lord takes up that case and says, I brought you up out of Egypt, I gave you my law, I gave you everything, and you turned your back. There's a continuing the prosecution 
in essence, uh, sometimes there's a defense. The Lord will say to Israel, so defend yourself. What do you, what do you have to say for yourself? More often than not, Israel doesn't say anything. They're on the witness stand and they just kind of sit there and they go, you got me. <laughs> I mean, that's in the Hebrew. That's a, you, know, you really have to be a Hebrew scholar to, to understand you got me, but it's, it, it's a rough translation. <laughs> it's not. I was kidding. Uh, but then, you know, a defense. So make a defense and then there's a pronouncement. I find you guilty. You've violated my, my covenant. And you are going to oftentimes, like in the book of Jeremiah, and you're going to go into exile because you violated my covenant. So we have this, the, the famous one is in Micah 6, but we also have, and you can just write, jot this down if you're interested in doing a little bit of reading this week, we have that same sort of covenant lawsuit present in the book of Jeremiah in chapters 2, uh, verses 2 through 31, where we have all of those same elements that are there as Jeremiah is bringing a case against his people. What was that second section that we talked about in, the, in this chiasm? Oracles against Judah. That's exactly, what, that's exactly how that section in chapter 2 begins, with Jeremiah bringing uh, a, a covenant lawsuit, an oracle against his people. You're going into exile. Uh, you need to be uh, a little bit anachronistic. You need a, a, you need a season of Lenten reflection. <laughs> Um, you really do. Um, but we can also, the one that I want to look at with you now is this idea of the call narrative. I already mentioned briefly uh, in, in the, kind of in its most basic form, a call narrative begins with a divine voice. As I like to say, uh, prophets are simply sitting there minding their own business. And then there's a, there's a voice, there's a call. And in, sometimes it can be abrupt. Moses can see a burning bush. Ezekiel can have this, this kind of theophanic vision of, of the chariots. Um, it's much more, it's much simpler in the book of Jeremiah. It's just a word. It's kind of like a knock on the door of the heart. Um, the word of the Lord came to me saying, which is one of Jeremiah's favorite phrases. The word of the Lord came to me saying. It's many, many, I, I can't remember off the top of my 46 times or something in the book. The word of the Lord came to me. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. The word of, but the word of the Lord comes to. And that's what he says. Is what we, we already read this. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you before you were born. I set you apart. I appointed you as prophet to the nations. Uh, remember, if you, I'm saying remember from October. You don't remember anything. Um, it's, it's only really 8.23 in the morning right now, so you really don't remember anything. I understand that. Uh, and we, we got up at 4, so... <laughs> um, if you, if you recall that, that word, I appointed you a prophet to the nations, the Hebrew verb there is just simply the verb natan, uh, to give, like to be a gift. So rather than making it, you could translate it appointed, like I was reading from the NIV just now, that's fine. 
But you could also, and it, well, this would not be taking any liberty with the Hebrew at all, it would just be, I gifted you as a prophet to the nations. I gave you as a prophet to the nations. I, I natand you, to make an English verb out of a Hebrew verb, which I, we're not supposed to do, but uh, I, I gave you as a prophet to the nations. That's the first step in a, in a, in a call narrative. Prophet is minding his own business, and a word or a, or a theophany, a vision, a burning bush, something comes to the prophet, gets his attention. <clears throat> the prophets then always react like good humans. What happens when the Lord comes to people? Uh, you, me, especially my son Joel, just kidding. <laughs> um, what happens when the Lord comes to you? You, you resist. That's what the prophets do. Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I'm too young. So there's resistance. Resistance is never the final word. Uh, a Lenten call... Hearing a divine voice in, this, in, the, in the time of Lent, as we talked about last week, what at least my kind of triad of thinking about Lent involves remembrance, humility, and expectation, anticipation. When that word comes to you, that Lenten word comes to you saying, uh, you are not the center of the universe, um, despite all of your accomplishments, and how gifted you are. Uh, you're not the center of the universe. Uh, humble yourself. What do we often do? We often, well, we, we behave just like a prophet. We resist. And the Lord is, that. this is the, the remarkable thing about a prophetic call narrative. The Lord never, never allows that voice of resistance to be the final voice. The Lord always comes back and says, Jeremiah, look, the Lord said to me, don't say I'm too young. You must go everywhere I send you uh, and say whatever I command you. Don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of them. And we're going to read at the end of chapter 1 that here Jeremiah is actually being sent to, to confront the priests the priests and the kings and the leaders. and I mean, he's, he's this little guy. He's a little priest from Manitoth. And he's being sent to confront the most powerful voices in Judah towards the end of Judah's history and essentially telling Judah, you're going into exile. But what's the word of the Lord to, that comes to him in that, at that point? Don't be afraid of them. There's, in other words... There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a restating of the divine voice of, of comfort in the call. Don't be afraid. Um, for I am with you and will rescue you. The fourth component in a prophetic call narrative, and every prophet has a call narrative. Uh, again, we, we talked about that a little bit in the fall, at the beginning of this length, kind of lengthy series, about that Hebrew word for prophet being Navi. Well, that's one of the titles 
besides the, the seer and the visionary, the Hosea and the Ro'eh. Um, but the prophet is a nav, ordinarily a Navi. And I made the case back in the fall that that is a, that title, the Navi, that title is a title of one who is called. When prophets are called, they say no, they resist. And the Lord then brings a comforting voice and then brings a sign, the fourth component. He brings a sign. Um, Moses gets a sign. Uh, Ezekiel gets a sign. Ezekiel gets a big sign. Uh, Isaiah gets a sign. And Isaiah's sign is actually very similar to Jeremiah's sign. Jeremiah's sign is this. Oops. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. And here's his sign, and this does sound an awful lot like uh, Isaiah, doesn't it? Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. See today, and then there's a a revisiting of the commissioning. See today, I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to, and then this is going to be language that uh, is going to uh, occur several times in the book of Jeremiah. Whoops. To uproot and tear down, destroy and overthrow. That's that's the bad news. (laughs) Um, To build and to plant. Um, Jeremiah, you're not just going to bring a word of destruction. You're also going to bring a word of hope to build and to plant. We're going to come back and and unpack that uh, in Jeremiah. It's a a beautiful passage in Jeremiah chapter 31. Um, The Lord said to me, whoops. uh, And so then there's a, sorry, go back to, and then so he gets a sign. He touched my mouth and then there's a commissioning. Now go, because I'm with you. As we begin thinking about maybe Lenten reflections of this incredible call narrative, um, we can also look at a pretty remarkable, to my mind at least, a pretty remarkable, well, we don't have to, we're going to look at other, we're going to, we'll, we'll get to some of those maybe. I just lied during Lent, but it's a feast day, so I know. <laughs> um, and we're going to skip this, so I don't need sound, sorry. Um, I'm going to skip that. Because um, what I want to do quickly, and then we're going to come back to this. Yeah, we're going to come back to that, is look at Mark. And if now, we're, now we're really skipping. If this is a Lenten kind of call narrative in Jeremiah's life, um, I'm with you. Don't be afraid. Humble yourself. Remember. Anticipate. Anticipate. To build up and to plant. It's not just, it's not just the negative. It's also to build up. Anticipate, Jeremiah. I'm with you. Now we're going to engage in a little bit of creative uh, intertextuality. Oh, did I not? Oh, I thought I put Mark on there. Well, I don't have Mark on there. Okay. Um, I have it here. We're going to engage in a little bit of intertextuality. What does that mean? What, I mean, the, the, 
most basic description of intertextuality is reading one text in light of another. So let's just look at Mark chapter 1 together very briefly. If you have your Bibles on a device or maybe a, a, an actual hard copy Bible, which nobody has anymore, but, um, but if you do, you can open it. Some people... <laughs> Okay, but you've got it on your device too, I'm sure. Okay, um, the, this is a really cool thing. The Gospel of Mark begins with this word "beginning." Now, the the reason that I uh, brought up again as we were reading Jeremiah one this morning about that that word play between "beterim" and uh, um, and Bebeten, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before the beginning. The Gospel of Mark begins with that word, arche. Um, it's not like the, the Gospel of John. Some of you will be familiar a little bit with the Gospel of John. How does the Gospel of John begin? There's, there's, one, there's one preposition that makes John very different than Mark. Um, John, in saying anarche, is probably getting his, his readers to resonate back to Genesis in the beginning. Uh, John is going to set out his gospel and say, I'm going to retell the story of the world. Mark begins a little bit differently. Mark simply says, the beginning, this is the beginning. Now, uh, we were just talking about this in class on Tuesday with my, with my students at, at Biblical Seminary. Um, once, you, once you say the beginning, what are, you, what are you inviting your readers to do? Maybe. Just think creatively with me. This is just the beginning. What are you inviting your readers to do? Keep the story going. This, this isn't the end. Mark is not setting out in his gospel to tell you everything that you know, has happened and kind of give you an encapsulated gospel and just say that's the end of it. Mark is actually beginning his gospel by saying, don't you see? This is just the beginning. And you, his followers, talking to Chris earlier before class started today. I'm of the opinion that Mark was probably the earliest gospel written down, maybe using some different sources, but um, Mark is very likely, we can talk about this if you want to another time, um, very likely being written to Christians, early Christians in the first century in the Christian story who are suffering. And that's why Mark has such a remarkable uh, emphasis of any of the Gospels. Mark has an emphasis on the cross. That's what uh, Tim Keller's book on Mark is just called, The King's Cross. And I think Tim gets a lot right in that book, emphasizing um, the centrality of the cross in the Gospel of Mark. Everything turns in chapter 8 with the... With the with Peter's confession, and then Mark right away says, and beginning then, Jesus began to explain to them how he had to suffer and die. And the rest of the gospel, 
is all about the cross, leading up to the cross. So the beginning is saying to, to those in the Christian story, don't you see? You're part of this story. And you're not just part of the story of the cross. You're part of the story of the euangelion, of the good news. That's the way the NIV, as I read for you just now, that's the way the, the NIV translates that second phrase in, in the Gospel of Mark. The beginning, meaning there's a middle and an end and you're part of it. The beginning of the euangelion, of the Gospel. Now there's some debate in, uh, in Markan scholarship on how Mark is using that. Uh, I don't believe, in my own reading, that the, the, the euangelion had become, by the first century, an agreed-upon genre of this is, this is a gospel, like the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Luke, the gospel of Matthew. That's not the way John or, or Mark is using gospel there, euangelion. I also, uh-oh, now I'm going to get in trouble, but oh well. <laughs> I don't live in New York. So you don't know where I live. So I can go hide in Philadelphia and, and then I won't be in trouble. Um, nor is the euangelion, that transaction that we sometimes think of as the gospel, that just gets us kind of ready for heaven when we die. Rather, Mark, very likely to my mind, is, is building on a great prophetic tradition in the Old Testament of using that word, euangelion, as a pronouncement of a, of a king who has come to establish his reign after a victory. That's the good news. That's the herald in Isaiah, that, that Isaiahic herald in chapter 52 who comes. There he is. He's on the mountain. What is he doing? What is he bringing? He's bringing the good news. And what's the good news that, that Isaiah uh, herald brings? Our God reigns. Our God is victorious. That's the euangelion. And it's as big as the cosmos. See how Mark, in, in the first two phrases in the Gospel of Mark, is saying, this is just the beginning of the reign of God about Jesus, the King, the Messiah, the Son of God, which is a, a royal title for another day. And then Mark immediately does something that is, it comes as absolutely no surprise. He begins by rooting this story in the great prophetic traditions of the Old Testament by saying, as is written in Isaiah the prophet, but then he quotes both Malachi and Isaiah, which is really interesting. Early scribes tried to, tried to fix that a little bit, but uh, that's a story for another day. Um, Essentially, Mark is saying, this is in the great prophetic tradition of the Old Testament. This is what the prophets were talking about. This is what Jeremiah was talking about, even though he only, he only quotes Malachi and, and um, Isaiah. Elsewhere in his gospel, he's going to quote from other prophets. This is what the prophets were talking about, don't you see? The last week of class, what we're going to do, is, and we'll have some fun, is we're going to look at Jeremiah 31, the great new covenant promise, but we're also going to have to look at Hebrews. 
That was a punctuation point. <laughs> Some, somehow. I don't even know how I did it, but it, was, it worked almost perfectly. Um, I wish I could do that again. Uh, it's a sign. <laughs> it's right. Keep going. It's the beginning <laughs> um, the, of the good news. Now, the, now, everything I've just said of Mark beginning with this cosmic, I, I, I'm convinced, this cosmic understanding um, is predicated upon the action in the book of Mark. Uh, this is a really fun thing about the, the gospel of Mark, which is very different um, than particularly Matthew, Luke, as other synoptic, we would call synoptic gospels. Those three gospels have a lot more in common than John does. But one of the things that, that Mark loves to do is Mark just emphasizes the action of Jesus. In Luke, uh, those of you who are familiar with Luke, you will uh, recognize this, this fact that Luke has these long series of discourses that Jesus gives, which are great, and they're wonderful, and they're true, but they're not there in Mark. Uh, if Mark knew them, he left them out. Why? Maybe because what Mark is really trying to emphasize is this immediate, and that's the word that he uses all the time, immediate, at once. If you, if you read through the Gospel of Mark 17 times, it's immediate, immediate, immediate. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Immediately the Spirit led him out into the wilderness. Okay, There's this immediacy of the actions of Jesus without the long discourses, particularly in Luke and John, but also in Matthew. Mark didn't include that in his gospel. Why? Whoops. Because building on the cosmic announcement of the kingdom of God, that's what we've just been talking about, Mark also offers a remarkable perspective on suffering. Now, what happens, what can happen, in, and Mark, uh, as, as I've been working on this new course uh, on the Gospel of Mark uh, the last six months or so, you know, I've read, I've done quite a bit of reading um, of you know, commentaries that are out there on the Gospel of Mark, and I've been astounded, and it, it, it's, it's, very, um, it's very telling, we'll put it, we can at least put it that way, it's very telling Commentators either, I'm making some generalizations here, but not completely, they either recognize the cosmic announcement of the kingdom, the immediate action of the coming of the kingdom in the Gospel of Mark. It's coming right now. Look at what Jesus is doing. Oh, and then we'll get to the cross, kind of as, a, as an afterthought. Or... They do things that are probably, this is probably even more common, especially in evangelical writings about the Gospel of Mark. It's really everything else, the cosmic announcement of the kingdom is just a forerunner. It's kind of a preamble to get to what Mark really wants to talk about, and that's the, his perspective on the cross and suffering. What I'd like to suggest as a Lenten reflection on this, and this is going to, we're going to unpack this. Be, Continuing next week, when we talk about uh, Jeremiah's laments, what I would suggest is 
these two have to be held in, in one whole cloth. That is Mark's gospel. It's the coming of the kingdom, but guess how the kingdom comes? The kingdom comes in suffering. The kingdom comes in lament. The kingdom comes in lama, lama, uh, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why did you forsake me? That's how the king, that is the coming of the cosmic kingdom. But it doesn't come with bells and whistles and in great power. It actually comes in our Lord, in this Lenten season, remembering that our Lord humbles himself. Our Lord himself suffers. Our Lord himself anticipates his own resurrection from the dead. And that's the story he invites us into in a Lenten season. It's the coming of the kingdom, but it's the coming of the kingdom through suffering. It's the coming of the kingdom through what Keller calls, you know, the way down of the cross. That's how the kingdom comes. We're going to see that, and this is why I wanted to... I wanted to begin unpacking uh, Mark chapter 1 with you a little bit um, this morning. And next week, we'll go on and talk a little bit more about the baptism of Jesus and his immediately uh, being led out into the, king, uh, the kingdom, into the wilderness. Uh, as a place of what? A place of wandering, a place of testing, you might even say a place of suffering. That's right after you have in Mark chapter 1, immediately, here we go again, um, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, immediately he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. That's Isaiahic vision from Isaiah chapter 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That prayer, Isaiah's prayer, is answered at the baptism of Jesus, and what immediately happens? He's led out into the wilderness. So maybe what Mark is doing right away is he's not pulling any punches in his presentation of the Lord. Right away, what Mark is doing is Mark is saying, the coming, the cosmic announcement of the coming of the kingdom, heaven is being ripped open and descending And immediately, Jesus is led out into the wilderness because that's how the kingdom comes. Picking up on that in Mark and reading again, next week, picking up on where we're leaving off right now to get to worship, picking up on that as we begin to explore the laments of Jeremiah, those collection of, the very familiar collection of Jeremiah saying, You deceived me. And some of that really honest language that Jeremiah uses to talk to the Lord that we're going to look at next week. Um, Very Markan. And I would suggest also uh, very Lenten for us. So just to renew or to review our threefold Lenten words, to remember, to be humble, and to anticipate. This is the season that we're in, and we will continue uh, our Lenten worship downstairs in a moment.